Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Luke Eplin about his book, Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series That Changed Baseball. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. I was born in uh, rural Illinois, grew up kind of near St. Louis, was a, have been a Cardinals fan, St. Louis Cardinals fan my, my whole life. Um, I went to college at Washington University in St. Louis, got into writing, and eventually made my way out to New York, where I've worked mainly in, in book publishing, but have also been sort of a freelance writer on, on the side, which uh, led me into this book. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, how did this... How did this project come about? It was a roundabout process. As I said, I'm from near St. Louis. And so um, my grandfather was a fan, not of the St. Louis Cardinals, but of the St. Louis Browns. Um, Up until the mid 50s, St. Louis had two major league baseball teams, the St. Louis Cardinals, who were usually pretty good, and the St. Louis Browns, who were usually pretty terrible. And my grandfather was an odd person in that he was a diehard fan of the Browns. And so I grew up hearing more stories about the Browns than someone of my generation normally would. And anybody that knows anything about the St. Louis Browns probably knows that Bill Veck was the last owner of the team. He did some of his most notorious stunts while he was the owner of the Browns, including bringing a little person, Eddie Goodell, to the plate. He had fans manage from the bleachers. He shot off fireworks. He did wild promotions, all of these sorts of things that we think about when we think about Bill Beck. And so I was always entranced by him as a figure and wanted to write a book about Beck and the Browns. Um, And it was while I was researching Beck's background that I focused on his earlier tenure. He was the owner of the Cleveland Indians from 1946 to 1949. So while I was researching that, I started to think that actually the most significant things Beck did were on that team, most specifically integrating the team. And I started seeing these other figures that seemed to be of equal importance to Bill Beck, uh, Larry Doby, Satchel Paige, Bob Feller. And I thought you could tell a really interesting alternate story of integration than the one that we normally hear, which is just completely centered on Jackie Robinson through these four figures. Yeah, I, um, as I, I said to you before we started the podcast, I mean, that all four of them are really fascinating. And I, you did a great job of kind of, um, you know, w- pulling them all together uh, around the, the 48 Indians. Um Let's start with uh, with Bob Feller, who was kind of, um, I guess, kind of the the stereotypical all American kid. Uh, can you talk a little bit about his background and his journey to the major leagues? Yeah, Bob Feller, I think, has the greatest origin story for any athlete in this country's history. He was born on a farm in rural Iowa, and evinced a. a 
a talent for baseball from a very early age. He used to throw a lot with his father. His father sort of recognized this incredible ability and his, his son, even before he was a teenager. And so at some point, the father cleared off a portion of his pasture and built Bob Feller sort of a diamond right there, basically in the cornfields. It was kind of the original field of dreams. It was also an incubator where Bob Feller was was competing against people many, many years older than him and, and more than holding his own. Through sort of happenstance, he makes it onto the Cleveland Indians roster as a high school junior at the age of 17. And in his very first start in the majors, he ties the American League for American League record for strikeouts. And then four starts later, he ties the major league record for strikeouts. He becomes just a, a sensation. He's so popular that during his high school graduation the next year, it's broadcast live on the radio from coast to coast. And it's not just that he has this amazing origin story. It's that during the time whenever the Depression, this would have been 1936, is still sort of weighing on the American consciousness. Feller represents something much larger. He represents this sort of quote-unquote American dream, especially for white America, where a boy can sort of come out of a rural farming community, pull himself up out of there, and just jump right to the majors and immediately begin striking people out. It's a sort of an aspirational story that is characterized in this, this youthful figure that gave Americans comfort and hope and all these other things. And so his his story becomes something that is told over and over and over again. People in the the late 30s, early 40s would have had this memorized in, in the back of their mind. He was such a huge figure. And so his narrative takes on sort of central importance for white athletes at that time in particular. Right. And, and one of the interesting parts of the book is, um, you know, you describe how Feller um, used that narrative and, and the fame that came with it to to or at least tried to capitalize it in the form of barnstorming, um, which of course was a, a common activity um, in baseball at that time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the world of barnstorming and and Feller's role in it particularly. Well, you have to sort of think that in the popular imagination, there's this idea that farmers are sort of um, rural and maybe a little bit sort of uh, I don't want to say necessarily backwards, but maybe not as technologically advanced as, say, sort of these these city folks or something like that. And that just wasn't the case with with Feller. His dad had some of the most sort of cutting edge machinery um, of any farm in the state at that time. He was an incredible businessman and he knew how to sort of make money, especially during the Depression. He was buying up a lot of farmland. So Bob Feller grew up in a household that was very entrepreneurially progressive and whenever they saw the sort of uh, fervor that was happening around Feller and all that he stood for, they took that narrative and they capitalized on it. Feller and his father never missed uh, a trick or sort of a way to make money on it. And one of the best ways that, that people could make money, uh, at least white baseball players at that time, was on the, the barnstorming trail. So this would have been after the major league season had concluded, so usually sort of early October and then sort of into November, right whenever the sort of the weather turns in a lot of places. Um, and this was because that in the 30s and 40s uh, and even earlier before television, a lot of places that did not have major league teams wouldn't have been able to see these these players in action. And so these sort of roving bands of players going from town to town competing in exhibition games on uh, these fields and cities that didn't have major league teams were a huge, huge deal. And they were also a huge deal because it allowed these players to do things that they weren't able to do in, during the major league season. Namely, they were playing against players from the Negro Leagues often. Um, so you did see sort of white versus black competition uh, during a time whenever the color line strictly uh, prohibited that in major league baseball at least. And so you had Bob Feller, who was sort of the, you know, the, the best white pitcher in the major leagues. And one of the ways that people sort of wanted to raise more money and draw more people and all this was to pit him against who was then the sort of best and most popular pitcher in the Negro Leagues. And that, would, of course, would have been Satchel Paige. So Bob Feller and Satchel Paige started hooking up and competing against each other almost immediately after Feller broke onto the national scene. Right. Um 
You know, I read I read years ago. I read uh, Larry Ty's excellent biography of of Satchel Paige, and uh, I'd never never tire of of hearing stories about him. Truly, one of the great characters um, in you know in American sports history. I would say um, you touched on a little bit, but can you talk a little more about what what was his what was Satchel Paige's stature, both in the Negro leagues and and in the baseball world in general at that time? Well, I think one of the things I wanted to, to really touch on in this book was that Satchel Paige and Bob Fuller were not only the best uh, black and white pitchers of their, respectively, of their generation, but they were the most entrepreneurial-minded athletes that this country has ever seen. For as amazing as Fuller was at capitalizing on his name, his story, his abilities, Satchel Paige was even better. He came uh, of age at the turn of the last century. He was born in the Deep South during a time of extreme Jim Crow laws and sort of lynchings and all the other sort of terrors that, that, would, have, that would have been associated with that. Um, and he managed to build himself up into the preeminent uh, black ball player at that time. He uh, was somebody who could sort of excite a crowd just by walking to the mound. He had a great persona. He was quick and witty in, in interviews on the mound. He had an array of windups and pitches that really sort of pleased the crowd to no end. And uh, just in terms of his ability, he had incredible control. He could put the ball wherever he wanted to. He hardly he hardly ever walked people. He was just an incredible, uh, skilled sort of uh, moundsman at the time. But I mean, you have to imagine Satchel Paige is doing this during the Depression when the Negro Leagues are in a state of collapse. Teams are, are folding left and right. The budgets are extremely small. And Satchel Paige builds himself up into a one-man franchise who barnstorms basically year-round. Whatever team sort of can pay him enough money, he will be there while also, of course, belonging to a Negro League team as well. And so he's making about as much money as any major league superstar is at that time. And for someone to do that is just an incredible uh, entrepreneurial feat. I mean, I think that you can draw a straight line from Satchel Paige to someone like Michael Jordan or LeBron James or something like that. I, I think that nobody has really matched his sort of business sense and the way that he built himself up into an attraction that not only earned a lot of money for himself, but helped him cross over into sort of the white consciousness. I mean, he was getting profiles and time and Saturday evening posts and all these other sort of great places during a time whenever a lot of publications just simply turned a blind eye to the Negro League. Even if you didn't know anything about the Negro League, it is it is probably a good bet that you knew who Satchel Page was or at least had heard of him. One thing I found very interesting in the book regarding Page and Feller and the barnstorming was <clears throat> um, was Feller's attitude towards towards black ballplayers um, in general. It was it was there was an ambivalence there. I mean, on the one hand, he was progressive in that he was obviously willing to do business with with black ball players and tour with them and you know he would shake their hands and which which many ball players wouldn't at that time um and yet he he seemed to still embody the attitude of, of many at that time that that they couldn't cut it in the major leagues um can you talk a little bit about that about about feller's feelings towards black people yeah, as you mentioned, there are a lot of layers to it, and I think it's it's easy to just be simplistic about it. But it's he he represents a lot of um, a lot of the sort of white attitude towards black ball players at that time. As you said, he was willing to not only barnstorm with them, but also to expose himself to defeat. Um, he's pitching against Satchel Paige quite often, and Satchel Paige is is pretty consistently beating him. And so it's uh, he's he's not somebody who who is who is against that sharing the field with them or anything along those lines. And a lot of black ball players later in their lives would honor Bob Feller by saying that the sort of barnstorming that he was doing, um, which often was done on a grand scale, sometimes with planes and in stadiums and, you know, drawing a lot of media attention gave them exposure to white reporters and white executives that they otherwise might not have had. And so 
Feller was, was often invited to gatherings of Negro League uh, players later in his life as sort of an honor. But at the same time, if he was ever asked by reporters at this time, whenever he is barnstorming, whether he thought anybody could cut it in the majors, he would hedge. And it's an interesting sort of hedge. He doesn't say, I don't think that it would work because we don't want them in the league or you know, it would cause racial tension or any of these sorts of things. He says that they don't have the sort of full-on ability that you would need to make it in the major leagues. And I think that what happens with Feller is that he really buys into these sort of myths that get formed around him, that he grew up on the farm, he did all of these chores, which built up his body, he worked every day with his dad to sort of perfect his pitching, he did all these sorts of things. In other words, he pulled himself up by the bootstraps, he sort of did these things through these American values of sort of strong bonds and hard work ethic and sort of family support and all these other sorts of things. And he did it and probably as a 17 year old, he pulled himself into the majors. And so he's kind of looking at these black players and saying, well, if they were that good, they, they should be able to do that. He's sort of discounting the uh, other barriers and prejudices that disallow them from having a similar sort of narrative as the one that he himself had. And so it's it's clouding his ability. He's 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 talking about them as well. If they were that good, they would be here. Um, and so yeah, he he has these blind spots that uh, that 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 make him want to seek out faults in their own sort of personal makeup rather than seeing the structural things that are preventing them from from moving into the majors. How great of a pitcher was Bob Feller? Well, he was he was somebody that in an age before radar guns, um, he, we know that he was throwing in the 100 mile an hour range, which at that time was extremely fast. He was wild, unlike Satchel Page, and so um, a lot of uh, hitters were kind of scared of him because um, th- you could get that 100 mile power fastball and you don't know where it's going. Um, and he was a complete workhorse. Um, he walked a lot of people because of his wildness and he struck out a lot of people. And so his pitch counts were tremendous, but he never really seemed to tire until later in his career. I think that if you sort of look at what he did before the war, he won over a hundred games and had over a thousand strikeouts by the age of 22. And whenever he goes into the war in 1942, he's coming off seasons where he's won like 27 and 25 games. So he is just right into his prime. You take those four years that he missed to the war and say that he has a baseline of 20 to 25 wins. You know, he's retiring with a couple, you know, at least 100 more wins and at least a thousand more strikeouts. And I think that we would hold him in a little bit higher esteem than he perhaps is now because his numbers don't quite seem to add up. But that's just because he missed so much of his prime. So, yeah, he was he was amazing. What can you say? Yeah, he doesn't you know, he doesn't come up. Um, I think he doesn't come up often enough when people talk about the greatest pitchers ever. And he doesn't come up when, you know, we, we, you hear a lot about how Ted Williams and DiMaggio, guys like that, lost, you know, years of their prime to the war. But Feller isn't, isn't often um, included in that conversation. And that's, that's a shame. Well, I, I think that, like, the interesting thing is, is that if you look at sort of the, the, the newspapers and the magazines at the time that Feller is there, which would coincide with the primes of Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio, um, they're talking about in the same breath. It's it's sort of Williams, DiMaggio, and Feller are you know the big ones. You might add Stan Musial in there as well. Like those are the sorts of superstars of the time. And Williams and DiMaggio held their either their mystique or their their iconic status through the the, the decades. And Feller lost his. And I think there are a variety of reasons for it. One of which is what we've talked about. Feller sort of continuing. Uh, ability to say insensitive things about either black players or executives. He had a longstanding feud with Jackie Robinson. He also became a little bit cantankerous later in his life and um, would say things in interviews that were perhaps a little misguided. 
but yeah, the, the, the star, the sheen went off of his star um, in a way that it didn't with DiMaggio and Williams. And that is too bad because I think he was, he was right up there with them. And I think that it, early in his career, he outshone them. Right. Um, so moving on to another of the main characters in your book, we have Larry Doby. And I, I think I enjoyed reading about him and his storyline uh, most of, of any of the characters in the book, um, in part, oh, in large part, because I knew the least about him. But as, as you touched on at the, kind of at the beginning of our, of our conversation, it, pre- it pre- presented this kind of alternative narrative to the Jackie Robinson story. Um, you know, the way we talk about Jackie, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who would think that kind of, you know, he broke the color line and there wasn't another African-American player in the league for another five years or something, you know, that he kind of, he carried this burden all by himself for a long time. And that's kind of the myth. Um, but of course, Larry, Larry Doby uh, joined the major leagues just a few months after Jackie uh, was the first and only player for a while in, in the American league. And of course, faced a lot of the, um, you know, the same challenges and obstacles and hatred, frankly, that, um, that Jackie faced, uh, he took a little bit different journey to, to the major leagues. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his, his, how he got, how he broke into the league. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think as you touched upon there, there's the way that we tell the story about major league integration is so centered on one individual that it can either give the impression that this individual had to sort of suffer uh, in solitude for a long time before Um, others joined him or that because Jackie Robinson sort of made it into the major leagues and immediately became pretty successful that, that it it became easier for the other people that followed him. And that simply is not the case. And I think it also sort sort of, sort of shows that there were many different ways of integrating that were happening at the same time. And if Branch Rickey hadn't done it, Bill Veck was going to do it anyway. Um, Larry Doby was somebody who came from Patterson, New Jersey. He was a tremendous, uh, high school athlete, so much so that Patterson held a, a big banquet for him when he graduated. Um, he went into the Negro leagues. He also went into the Navy, which was segregated and which really sort of, um, was his first sort of big brush with states, state sanctioned segregation. It really wounded him. Um, but he was on the Newark Eagles, which was a tremendous team. They ended up winning the 1946 uh, Negro League World Series. He was tearing up the league in 47. And so Vec had his eye on him, but he did not want to, to integrate the way that Branch Rickey did, which was to sign Jackie Robinson in late 1945, send him down to the minors, give everybody time to acclimate, allow sort of Robinson to sort of, you know, tiptoe his way through the system before he finally integrates the Dodgers 18 months later. Vec just wanted it to happen really quickly. He thought that sort of putting Dovey into the minor leagues would put too much pressure on him. He just thinks it's almost like a Band-Aid. You just rip it off and get it over with. And so that's literally what happened. Larry Dovey played one last game for the Newark Eagles on July 4th, 1947, he boarded a train to Chicago where the Indians were playing the White Sox. And the very next day, he was in the major leagues. He traveled literally overnight to the majors. And it was a tremendous shock. His teammates also didn't know that this was going to happen. And so they treated him very coldly. Um, some of them didn't shake his hand. They didn't want to sort of warm up with him. He, uh, he Doby said that he was so nervous and sort of, sort of in shock by the rapidity of this that the first 10 times or so he came to the plate, his teeth were chattering and he couldn't get them to stop. I mean, it was, it was very different than what Robinson had had to go through. How, what was the reception uh, among the, the people of Cleveland? I, I, I primarily, the, you know, the white people, the white fan base in Cleveland to, to Doby's arrival. Well, it was, um, it's kind of complicated because in 1947, Joby comes in in July of 1947, and a lot of the newspapers are saying, well, 
if he proves that he's, you know, major league worthy, then, uh, then we're going to accept him. A lot of people were skeptical. Um, they weren't certain if this was kind of a, uh, a stunt that Bill Veck was, was doing in order to draw more fans. Bill Veck was notorious for promotions that would draw people to the ballpark. Um, other people, I mean, particularly among the players, they felt that Dobie had not earned his right to be there yet. They did not consider the Negro Leagues to be in the same class as the major leagues. These are the white players. Um, so they thought that they had gone through the minor league system, um, everybody except for Bob Feller, and that they had sort of worked their way up to the majors. And here's Dobie just sort of waltzing into the majors. He hadn't earned his, his right to do that. There was one player, Eddie Robinson, who uh, whenever Dobie was announced that he was going to start in Eddie Robinson's position, which was first base, this would have been Dobie's second game with the Indians. Eddie Robinson quit the team. He just said, I, 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 I think this is unfair. I, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to sort of get my my position in the majors, and here's this person who just comes in here with just right from the Negro Leagues and is taking playing time away from me. You know, there was this fear among white players that integration would mean uh, a lack of standing and playing time for them. And so the manager of the team, Lou Boudreaux, was in a real spot. He he could sense that there could be a mutiny that could build if Larry Doby um, was taking playing time away from these individuals. And so Doby really just didn't play a lot in, in 1947. He only started one game. He was mainly used as a pinch hitter. He was nervous. He didn't get any time to sort of uh, settle into a rhythm or anything like that. So a lot of fans really thought that Dobie wasn't major league worthy and that Bill Veck had made a big mistake um, by doing what he did. So the reception wasn't necessarily tremendously hostile in Cleveland. It was just, you know, this was, he, he's not a ball player. And that, bring us, that brings us to the fourth major character of the book, uh, Bill Veck, and you talked a little bit about him. Um, he was certainly uh, a character and really revolutionary in the way he tried to, you know, try different ways to bring people to the ballpark. Um, could you talk a little bit about him and his personality? Yeah, Veck was born in Chicago to basically into baseball. His father was the president of the Chicago Cubs. He grew up around the ballpark. He learned a lot about how to run a team by the time he was basically 18. Um, he had a tremendous head start on a lot of people. And he got into the Cubs organization, but where he really made his mark was whenever he bought the Milwaukee Brewers as a, as a very young man. I think he was 27. Um, and the Milwaukee Brewers were still a minor league team at this point. And uh, Vec really then sort of started to experiment. He believed that at the time... Baseball was a little bit too staid and, uh, and, and not as entertaining as it could be. He thought that competitive play on the field could coexist with sort of entertaining sideshows before and between innings. And so he didn't think that that took away from the dignity of the game. He thought that it could bring out people who were not sort of already big baseball fans because they would come to see the fireworks or the sideshows or whatever. And then they would stay and they would watch the game and they would actually then become fans. And so he really thought that like you could, you could build a bigger base by, by doing this. A lot of executives at the time thought that, that this was like circus stuff, that it was taking away from the dignity of the great American pastime and all this sort of things. In fact, just didn't have any time for them. He was somebody who was very ahead of his time. Even the way he looked, he didn't wear a hat. He didn't wear a tie. He didn't wear a suit jacket. He. This was at a time whenever owners wore three-piece suits to the ballpark. I mean, it's. He looks so different than all of them, and he was just a sort of a whirlwind personality. He rarely slept. He was out giving speeches all the time. He was doing anything he could to promote his team, and he was also basically acting as his own GM. And so he was putting together rosters, and he had extraordinary baseball instincts. I mean, he, he takes Cleveland from a sixth-place club in 1946 to a championship in 1948. I mean, he just completely turns around the club within two years. And so he has this sort of incredible combination of skills and a personality that just excites anybody that he's with. He's almost like the Pied Piper. He can sort of just get you to follow him. 
Was there any precedent for, you know, some of the things that he was doing? Like, where did he come up with these techniques? Did he have a mentor? Was there, was there anyone doing these things at all? Fireworks, you know, giveaways, that kind of stuff. Or did he just come up with all that on his own? There were there was there was more experimentation in the minor leagues than there was in the major leagues. I believe that there was an owner whose name is escaping me in Tennessee who was doing stuff like this as well. Um, and so it wasn't like he was wholly original. There was um, there was a, a show on Broadway that was extremely popular at this time. It was called Hell's a Poppin', and it was also a movie made in the 30s and 40s. But it was an unpredictable show that involved the audience, and so. They would do things like uh, do raffles during the Broadway show and the winner got like a big block of ice or like a chicken or something like this. And it was funny then to just sort of watch this person in the audience have to wrestle with the chicken for the rest of the show. You know, that's sort of it, it was kind of an anarchic, almost like Marx Brothers energy to it. And Vec was very inspired by that. He would give away wild promotions like he would give people cows and pigs and you know, doves and other sorts of things that then they would have to figure out what to do with during the game. Um, And so there was just kind of, it had an anarchic energy to it. He he calmed down a little bit by the time he got to Cleveland, um, but there were still, he hired clowns as first base coaches. He had a stuntman literally on the roster of the Indians. And before games, this guy would drive around in a Jeep on the outfield and shag flies um, you know, he just had this, this energy about him that was so different than the way that a major league baseball game would have felt at that time that like people didn't really know what to make of him. But now I think that all these things you see at major league parks now, whether it's cap dances or mascots or t-shirt cannons or whatever, that's all inspired by Vec. Like everything that you see there, the fingerprints of Bill Vec is all over the modern stadium. Um, so as you touched upon, <clears throat> excuse me, as you touched upon, uh, Dolby's, you know, his initial transition to the, to major leagues was difficult and the 47 season was difficult. Um, but he really put it together in 48, um, after struggling a little at the start of the season, but then kind of midway through the season, he became a mainstay in the lineup and, and a, a very important piece of that club. And that summer, um, Vec went ahead and signed Satchel Page, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a surprise, of course, because um, the prevailing thinking was to acquire young black players who who you could teach and mold and had time to learn the major league game. And um, I guess another factor would be that you know the younger players didn't come with as big a price tag as a Satchel Page did. Um, but how did he finally get his shot? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So basically, in 1946 and 1947, Bilvek is quoted in newspapers constantly as saying the Indians are weak in the outfield and weak in pitching. And how is he going to turn that around? This is, of course, an era before free agency. Whenever you can just kind of go out and sign people, you had to either do it through trades or through uh, drafting, things like that. But Vec had this other idea of going into the Negro Leagues, of course. And Larry Doby at first looked like somebody who was a bust and wasn't going to make it. They shift him into the outfield in 1948. And he just kind of has this miraculous turnaround. Uh, He just tears up spring training. He makes it onto the Indians roster and he becomes the outfielder that the Indians needed. Um, Pitching in 1948 continued to be a problem, particularly because Bob Feller was having a very subpar season. Bob Feller was under 500 by the all-star break, which was unheard of. And so Vec needed something fast because the Indians were an extremely tight pennant race. He had seen Satchel Page pitch as early as the early 1930s. And he had always kind of had it in the back of his mind that, you know, if only I could get somebody like Satchel Page. He didn't want to do it in 1946 whenever he first buys the Indians because, as you said, Satchel Page was already in his 40s by this time. And so it would certainly be interpreted as a promotion or a stunt if Vex signed Satchel Page during a year when the Indians were no good. But in 1948, the Indians were good, and they were in a tremendous pennant race. And Vec, 
thought that they needed pitching reinforcements. And so it was finally time to get Satchel Paige onto the roster. That didn't prevent people from saying that, oh, you're doing this just to bring in more people. You're trying to set attendance records and all this. But Beck was adamant. He he knew what Satchel Paige could do. He thought he still had enough in him to make a contribution. And it, you know, it didn't hurt the fact that Satchel Paige was, uh, you know, somewhat of a showman and somebody that could draw people to the park. That certainly, I think that Vec and Paige had very similar personalities, but Vec did this purely for uh, competitive reasons. He, he, he was looking to see the best pitcher out there and it happened to be Paige. So, you know, you, you touch in the book about how um, some of the, you touch on some of the struggles that, that Doby had. Um, you know, being the lone black player on the team and, and um, the prejudice he faced and having to stay in different hotels and, and things of that nature. And of course, the, the, the loneliness that comes with that kind of life. Um, and so one would think that Satchel joining the team would be a real boon for, for Dobie, but it wasn't that simple, as, as you talked about. How, how did the two of them get along? They didn't get along well. Um, as you mentioned, Larry Doby, one of the primary problems besides obviously prejudices and, and sort of lack of playing time was that he was alone so, so much. He could not stay in a lot of the same hotels as the Indians players. And even whenever he did, he did not have a roommate, which was the custom at the time, because there was no custom of a white player rooming with a black player. Um, he was the lone black player on the Indians for more than a year. And so uh, he would sort of have a bad game and then just have to go back and just sort of stew in, you know, the, the bad feelings that he had. He wasn't able to sort of have a beer with people and sort of, you know, forget about it or something like that. And so the, the alienation and the loneliness really dragged on Dobie. And he, he talked in many interviews about wanting another black player there that he could sort of talk through these burdens and challenges that he was facing as, as a pioneer. What he got instead was Satchel Paige, who was 17 years older. So the way I always think of it is imagine if like your dad suddenly becomes your roommate. I mean, Satchel Paige was old enough to be Doby's dad, but I think more significantly, Satchel Paige and Larry Doby came from very different generations. Um, Larry Doby was somebody who was always endeavoring to be what he said all the time as dignified on the field. He, uh, he carried himself in interviews on and off the field as a way to, to sort of, uh, you know, show that sort of dignity and pride and everything like that. Um, that was very important to him. Satchel Page came from a generation where he had developed a persona that some people um, could see traces of the, the the comic persona step and fetch it in the sort of slow walk, the the, the deadpan look, the even the, the the way he talked. And so, you know, he was more of a, he was he was into sort of joking with reporters and, and teammates. You know, he had elaborate wind ups, things like this. A lot of white papers called Satchel Page a clown. Um, you know, unfairly, of course, because Page was anything but that. And Dobie thought that that sort of persona was detrimental to what he was trying to establish as what a black, how a black, black player acted and, and held himself and things like that. And so he was constantly trying to get Satchel Page to, to, to get, you know, to, to change. But Page was in his 40s and it, he made it that far. He wasn't going to change. So these two did not have sort of similar philosophical worldviews. Um, Lou Boudreau was the, the star player slash manager of the 47, 48 Indians. Um, how was his relationship with Doby and Page and how, how important was he to making that, you know, experiment for lack of a better word uh, of integration work within the Indians? I think his relationship was okay. Lou Boudreau was somebody who um, joined the Indians when he was 23. And within a year, he's basically made player manager. He, he becomes the manager of the Indians at age 24 while he's still the shortstop. Um, There are many reasons for that, but he holds that position through the war. And whenever Bill Vec buys the team, he 
does not think highly of Boudreaux as a manager. He loves him as a shortstop, does not love him as a manager, thinks that he's somebody who just kind of manages from his gut. He doesn't have a bit, lot of strategy. He's not kind of like, I guess, a sabermetrical guy, as we would now say it. And Vec wanted more of a, 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 a tactician. But he, Boudreaux made it clear to Vec that if he if Vec took away his managing things and he'd also have to take away his shortstop, he would not play for the Indians if he could not also manage the Indians. So Vec was in a bind. Vec did not want to lose Boudreaux as a shortstop, even though he tried at the end of the 1947 season. But the town revolted. They loved Lou Boudreaux. He was so popular in Cleveland. So Vec was kind of stuck with him as a manager. Um, and Boudreaux was trying to prove to Bill Vec of, that he could be a great manager. And he was also trying to hold the clubhouse together while also being a player. And so with Doby and Page, he was kind of in a bind because he couldn't sort of alienate the white players that maybe didn't think so highly of integration. And he also was just so interested in, in trying to hold on to his position that he didn't perhaps give Doby the support that, that he would have needed at that time. Um, and with Page, Boudreaux was just kind of frustrated with him because Page often was late for things. Sometimes he didn't even show up to the ballpark if it was raining because he was like, figure there wasn't going to be a game anyway. Um, Page just had his own schedule. And Boudreaux got frustrated with that. Um, so, I mean, you can understand why, but I'm not sure that that either Page or Boudreaux or Page or Doby would have had a lot of high words for him. Um, of course, the 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 Indians went on to win the World Series that year in 1948. Um, and there's this wonderful anecdote that you share in there towards the end of that season about. Um, about Bob Feller using the Indians using Bob Feller's telescope from World War II to steal signs, um, and of course that that was interesting within the context of of you know the, the recent sign stealing scandal with the Astros. Um, I wonder how great how common was was that type of thing in baseball at that time. I mean, it was pretty common. You can look at the sort of nineteen fifty one Giants as as a team that that stole signs most famously whenever Bobby Thompson hit his shot heard around the world. Um, and it was so common that, that ball players would devise systems where they, they were trying to throw off the sign stealers by, you know, switching signs or having the pitcher call the signs or anything like that. For the Indians case, Bob Feller went to war. He was in the Navy. He had a military grade telescope that he was able to keep when he came back. So the, Municipal Stadium, where the Indians played, was this giant coliseum of a ballpark, 78,000 people it could hold. So center field was very far away from the plate, and they would station a pitcher who was not pitching that day, sometimes Feller, sometimes Bob Lemon, in there and point the telescope at the catcher's fingers and then sort of either like put an arm outside of one of the boxes in the, the, the manual scoreboard or just kind of do some gestures so the batter could sort of look straight ahead and see what was coming. Um, you know, the Indians had played a tremendous amount of games at home in September of 1948, and they had a tremendous winning record. Um, I think the sign stealing had a lot to do with that. Fascinating. Um, you know, so of course the Indians won the world series and, and, Dobie and Page were instrumental on that team. Um, Page, not so much in the series itself, but he had a, uh, there was a period late in the season where he was um, crucial to the Indian success. And then, uh, you know, Dobie was perhaps their best player in the World Series. One would think that would, that would have opened the floodgates for black players in the major leagues. But of course, that wasn't the case, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the subtitle of my book was uh, the ending of it is the World Series that changed baseball. And in some way, that might be a little bit misleading because it should have changed baseball. Like the Indians hadn't won the World Series since 1920. They hadn't been in the World Series since 1920. They had always they'd spent sort of 28 years up until that point trying to get past the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Tigers they could never get over the hump. They were they were never terrible. They were always just kind of in the mix, but they couldn't take it to that ultimate level they needed to do. 
And it's what Bill Veck does when he comes in is in addition to various trades that he's makes, he integrates the team. And as you said, Satchel Paige had six crucial wins down the step, down the stretch of 1948. Without those wins, the Indians do not make the World Series. And Larry Doby morphs into a superstar, without which the Indians definitely would not have made the World Series, and they wouldn't have won the World Series without Larry Doby. And so basically, not only what Beck is doing is, it's, he's not only showing you how to draw more people to the ballpark, he's giving teams a blueprint for getting past the, the big hitters. And the blueprint is simple. You integrate, you put, to, you, you take the, you know, you can sign good players from the Negro leagues and then you can sort of plug in whatever you need your weakness. I mean, as I said, the Indians weakness was pitching in the outfield Beck plugged those in and ends up winning the world series. And so that really could have been the blueprint for other teams, but of course, prejudice and, you know, uh, conservative and traditionalism and things like that run deep in Major League Baseball. And so by the time the 1949 season opens, no other team has followed Beck's lead. Why do you think Dolby doesn't receive more recognition today? Um, is, it as, is it as simple as him not being the first, you know, Jackie being the first and that, that narrative just taken off? Or is there more to that? I think that's a huge reason. I think that the second person to do anything becomes the answer to a trivia question. Um, I think that Dobie's career at the end of 1948, whenever Dobie wins the world series for the Indians and is sort of heralded as this up and coming superstar, Bill Veck really thought he was going to be better than Stan Musial. Um, there was this idea that Dobie was going to be much better than Jackie Robinson. He was, he was younger than Robinson. He had this tremendous future ahead of him. And he just kind of has an uneven career. He's up some years, he's down some years. And I think a lot of people sort of interpreted that as Dobie being in his head, as Dobie being perhaps too introverted and sensitive and all these other things that prevented him from unlocking his, his greatness. Even Bill Vex thought that. But I think that we discounted all of the burdens and the, the sort of prejudices and the, the, the hostility that Dobie had to go to through that, that really took its toll on him mentally and emotionally. And that caused the, this sort of uneven career. I think that for a long time, people didn't recognize that. And also Dobie himself is just a much quieter individual. I mean, it, out of the four people that my book focuses on, Vec, Page, and Feller all wrote more than one autobiography. They're, they're sort of telling their life story constantly. It's kind of almost like a form of currency for these people. Dobie never wrote an autobiography, which is shocking. He should have. Um, but he, he was a reticent man. He did not like interviews. Um, he was a very tough man to get to know. He was certainly the hardest figure for me to, to research. Um. That being said, there there may not be a, a great answer to this follow up question, but I, you know, when you hear a lot of old time black athletes talk um, about their experiences, there's often a bitterness in, in their tone, and I say that without any judgment at all. You know, I'm thinking of guys like Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, um, and not just in baseball. Uh, Bill Russell has it. I would say Oscar Robertson has it. There's there's a bitterness because of all that they had to endure because of the color of their skin. Um, do you have any concept of how Doby looked back on his role in integration and his experience in the major leagues? Yeah, I think bitterness is a good way to, to describe it. Um, there is a writer for the New York Star Ledger named Jerry Eisenberg, who sure, um, I'm familiar with him. Yeah, yeah, lived next to Dobie in Montclair, New Jersey, for a long time, and he said that Dobie would come over to his house basically to unload. He almost sort of treated Jerry as a as a, as a therapist, and and at one point Jerry told him, "Dobie, you are the or Larry, you are the bitterest ex athlete I've ever I've ever interviewed." I think that. You know, those slights really, really added up to Dobie. And, um, you know, you could say the same thing about Satchel Paige. The one interesting thing, this obviously isn't in the book because it it takes place after the book, but Satchel Paige published his autobiography, um, Maybe I'll Pitch Forever, in the mid to late 60s. And at that time, Bill Veck was out of baseball. And one of the things that he was doing during this sort of uh, little retirement of his was writing a lot for the newspapers. 
And so they had Bill Veck uh, review Satchel Paige's uh, autobiography, and it sort of went across the wire in many newspapers. And one of the things that Bill Veck said was that he was surprised at how bitter the autobiography is. He's like, I, this is not the Satchel Page that I know. I, I don't know if the, the ghostwriter did this, but you know, I, 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 this is not what I recognize when I think of Satchel Page. And I think that even Bill Veck, who was lifelong friends with Page and who really you know, uh, helped Page a lot over his career, didn't see the bitterness that was there, or perhaps uh, chose not to, or whatever. But it was a really interesting statement um, from from Vec that he he couldn't see that that bitterness. But yeah, you read Satchel Page's autobiography, and here's somebody who, you know, continues to be a folk hero, and and he he's very bitter in certain places about it. Yeah. Um. Let me just say once again, the name of Luke's book is Our Town, the Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series that Changed Baseball. Um, I loved it. I mean, it's just, you know, if you're a baseball fan, you'll eat it up. But um, you don't you don't need to be a baseball fan. It, it just, you know, it's composed of and based around these four fascinating characters, um, which really drives it. And so I really recommend it. Um, I want to ask you one last question, Luke, that I ask all my guests, and that is, what is your all-time favorite sports book? Oh, man. Gosh, that is, uh, that's a tough question. Um, I really like, uh, I really like the sports writing of David Halberstam. Um, and so I'm, I, the two books that flash to mind are The Breaks of the Game, which is his fantastic book about the Portland Trailblazers in the late 1970s and October 1964. I guess I'm going to go with October 1964 because it, it has a lot of similarities to my book. This is about the St. Louis Cardinals, my beloved team and the New York Yankees in 1964. The St. Louis Cardinals have been pretty bad through the fifties. Um, and then they decide to integrate and they bring on these amazing players, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Kurt Flood, and it really sort of propels them back into the pennant race. And the Yankees, who had won a ton of championships through the 50s with very minimal and sort of uh, conservative integration that they'd done, had all these aging white superstars by the time 64 comes around and no sort of black players in their farm system ready to replace them. And so you saw it's it's kind of a similar theme to my book that uh, the teams that, that integrated and really embraced it um, started to outrun the teams that were a little bit more uh skeptical of it right i i've, I've read breaks of the game obviously a phenomenal book i'll have to check out october 1964 yeah all right luke well thank you so much for coming in and talking about your book um i wish you the best of luck with it and um take care all right thank you